This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Will it be your home for the rest of your unnatural life? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hello, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 263. This time around, you're hanging out with a multi-award winning filmmaker, author, and horror master. Master, Axel Carolyn. At time of release, her brand new feature film, The Manor, starring the legendary Barbara Hershey, is available now on Amazon Prime, part of Welcome to the Blumhouse. Hang out as we look into the making of this terrifying supernatural adventure tethered to a story of warmth and heart. We celebrate her love of the Halloween season and all things spooky. The incredible legacy of work she has already created, directing the fan-favorite black-and-white episode of Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Bly Manor and the soon-to-come Midnight Club. Revisit her essential anthology, Tales of Halloween, and her experience in crafting the world of chilling adventures of Sabrina. Creep Show, American Horror Story, and much more. Episode 263 with Axel Carolyn starts now. This is Axel Carolyn, and you are listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. When you experience something disorienting, close your eyes and count to five. When you open them again, whatever you saw or heard will be gone. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a truly visionary and passionate filmmaker. Her exuberance for the horror genre and expertise therein is second to none. She went from horror fan to journalist in the early part of her career, conducting interviews and crafting articles for various websites and magazines, including Fangoria. She's written books, earning the Silver Book of the Year awards for 2008's It Lives Again, horror movies in the new millennium, 2018's Fright Fest Guide to Ghost Movies, and several short stories found within the pages of Dark Delicacies 3 and the mammoth book of body horror. She began creating films of her own, beginning with the highly acclaimed shorts The Last Post, Hooked, and The Halloween Kid, before her own beautiful debut feature, Soulmate, that made its premiere at Sitkiss, winning her the Mary Shelley International Award and the admiration of fans such as writer-director Mike Flanagan. She went on to pay tribute to her favorite time of the year with the anthology film Tales of Halloween, an incredible project assembling luminaries such as Darren Lynn Bousman, Lucky McKee, Dave Parker, and more. And with her own segment, Grim Grinning Ghost, a cast that included Alex Esso, Lynn Shea, and Barbara Crampton. Then it was to the writer's room with a game-changing television series, 
Unbelievable, by the way. My God, The Chilling Adventures of Serena. 2019 saw her directing fan-favorite episode 8 of The Haunting of Bly Manor, The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, followed by a spectacular journey through Greg Nicotero's Creep Show, a couple of episodes of the 16-time Emmy-winning American Horror Story, and she's got even more surprises in store for us, taking the helm for some new adventures with Mike Flanagan's upcoming The Midnight Club. Her love of antique architecture, horror history, and its future are all imbued into her work with immaculate attention to detail viewed through the lens of a true fan whose enthusiastic fervor has bespelled the genre with her own truly unique voice her latest project is part of amazon studios welcome to the blumhouse series landing on amazon prime video friday october 8th it's called the manor we are honored to welcome its writer director the amazing master axel carolyn yeah All of that is absolutely accurate and not an exaggeration at all. <laughs> all true and all well-deserved. Yes. My God, yes. your trajectory has been unbelievable. And it's all just fucking amazing shit with amazing people because you're amazing. Yep. Let's just say it there. So we're going to start off. She's writing my back. <laughs> we're going to start off with just your journey as a horror fan and your earliest experiences as well as what we do with the genre. But I also want to talk about how Axel has joined us at the end of the year yes. for our end of the year wrap. That's right. Which is a tradition. And we're really excited Hopefully she'll do it with us again. Oh, I, I would sure love hope to. So. But oh I God. love that we get to do this in person today. Yes. Yes. And actually be in this amazing studio. Oh my God, this place is insane. Wow, thank you so much. Thank my you. God. So yeah, take us back to your earliest experiences with horror and how this love affair started. Right. Um, I've I've wondered a lot what how that started. I'm sure that pretty much everybody's kind of, you know, every horror fan has some kind of idea, but doesn't know exactly. I know that looking back, I was obsessed with um, Disney cartoons that had ghosts and skeletons. Sure, yes. And that was always, I would start drawing little things and write little stories and make little books and have illustrations from very young age from the moment that I could hold a pencil and it would always be a goofy ghost and little skeleton. And yet a skeleton was the most terrifying thing I could think of meeting in real life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I would have done, but um, so yeah, I guess that obsession's always been there, but I, I didn't get to watch horror movies I didn't get to watch many movies at all when I was little. My parents were very strict, so I could only watch one thing a week and and I would always have to show what I was watching and give them a review if I was going out and it had to be approved. And, but a few little things did manage to seep through. I remember seeing ghost story when I was very little and it terrified me because it had the the jump scares and and it was, yeah, that was an early experience of me just going, Oh, maybe this is not for me. It's too scary. (laughs) But, um, the one that's, very defining for me is as a young teenager seeing David Cronenberg's The Fly. And that felt like it had Jeff Goldblum for one thing, which was, you know, (laughs) just seen Jurassic Park and he was the hottest thing. But then it also had horror that makes you get grossed out, but also makes you cry and be really affecting. And it was the first time that I realized it's not just... It's not just spooky. It can do a lot of other things. It can say a lot of other things. And that's what I think I like about horror in general and and what I hope I can try to bring into my work as well is like you want to get people to be to play with being scared and being spooked. But you also really want them to be emotional about other stuff, whether it's laughing or crying or whatever, but just bringing something else into it. And the fly was the first to show that to me. You know, I was really curious because you grew up in uh, Brussels, right? Belgium, was it? Yeah. 
Did your neck of the woods get hit by the video nasties bands of those movies in the 80s and 90s? Not really. No, no. We didn't have the same thing. But I think, I mean, in the 80s, I wouldn't have been aware of it. But I don't think we had much censorship. But also, the way you found movies in Belgium is a little bit funny. And especially once I got old enough to realize that releases. So the country's divided in several languages, mostly French and Flemish, which is Dutch. And then distributors are different for the French-speaking uh, part and for the Flemish-speaking part. And so something that might get released in Flanders would not get released in Brussels. Oh, so we have wow. to go to a different place to find it, and it would have a different title. And so it's, it's this whole exercise to try to figure out and who would wow. have which version, because if something was censored one place, it wouldn't be in the other. And who was dubbed? And Yeah, it was... It was pretty wild. So what was your access like to these video? Were you discovering it at video stores? Were things televised? What was your gateway into getting them? I didn't. TV was, you know, we only had, we didn't have cable. So it was just like two channels and right. both Belgian channels. So there were, I watched James Bond. We had James Bond on Friday nights for like a year, which was awesome. And that I remember being obsessed with. But but horror was mostly just going to video stores and just like everybody else, you know, looking at cover art. Still to this day, I still have not watched Street Trash because it scared me so much. When I looked at it. <laughs> oh, wow. it wasn't that the cover we had in, in Belgium wasn't the one with the guy out of the toilet. It was a pair of boots with just the legs sticking out like the guy had been blown out. And it just looks so scary. And, and I've never wanted to. I've got the DVD at home. I've never wanted to pop it in and watch it because I'm just that's oh not going to live up to my, up to my idea of what the movie yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Man, I remember buying that thing at a video, like uh, when videos were still the thing before DVDs. If you wanted to go and like buy a rare video cassette, they were like 200 bucks. Yes. I remember buying yeah, Faster yeah. Pussycat Kill Kill. I think it was like 280 bucks because they were sold. There, there really wasn't that much of a a market for people buying them at home right. mostly you'd rent them and it was kind of ludicrous to own video cassettes back then, especially hard to find ones yeah. so yeah you have to order stuff like street trash and be like almost 300 bucks yeah what about evolving your love of horror and taking it to start writing articles in your path to being a journalist and your first opportunity to do an interview with a filmmaker or actor that you really right. admired in, in <laughs> that path yeah so you know belgium doesn't have a huge or it didn't at the time i can only i haven't lived there in so many years i can only speak to what it used to be at yeah. the time but it didn't have a big film industry and it didn't i didn't even speak english when i was little like i grew up as far as you can imagine from hollywood in every way culturally and everything just just language and so many barriers like i knew no one who worked in film that was just it seemed completely impossible when i thought i wanted to have a, a career in film my parents made me go to law school because they're like this is not this is not an option this does not happen in brussels but what we did have in Belgium that was awesome was this, and still exists, is this film festival once a year. It's two weeks of just horror movies. And from the moment I heard about it and was old enough to attend when I was about 16, I think, I started going and seeing everything. And so I would watch for two weeks, I would watch four to seven or eight movies a day. And you wouldn't know in advance what it was. Or sometimes you would. I saw Scream there. And it wasn't the big event that it was at the time. And sure. Wes Craven came in to introduce it. And so there would be all those amazing guests who would show up. And Robert Englund was there one year. And people who I admired and thought were awesome. And I wanted to have that kind of career. And so that was my first, you know, at first just going to watch movies and then realizing, oh, those people, you can actually speak to them. And they will actually, you know, if you if you tell them, I want to be a filmmaker, they will speak to you. They will kind of, you can ask questions about, at the time, there wasn't the same access to behind the scenes stuff and that we have today. So it was great to get to ask all those questions. 
And then I was on a message board, funnily enough, with Ryan Turek, who is now at Blumhouse. Yes. And that was many years ago. And I told him, I'm going to this festival and Stuart Gordon's going to be there. Would you like me to interview him for the website? And he said, sure. Yeah, I'll give you a, a press pass. That'll be great. Just, just, you know, get press credentials through the website. And that was my first experience interviewing somebody. And I... I was a huge fan of Stewart's. I reanimator is one of the reasons I wanted to make movies. And so I, I came in, had tons of nerdy little questions, told him about how much I wanted to make movies. And then he was like, at the end of the interview, he just said, well, I'm about to have lunch with the people from the festival. Would you like to join? And then I got to go. And he was throughout the following 15 years. He's always been someone who would answer questions if I had questions, would be there if I wanted advice, would just, you know, be open. And he was one of the first people to say, if you want to work on set, I can't necessarily pay you. But if you want to be a PA, you can get yourself out of here. You, you're always welcome on the set. And and his wife was super supportive. You know, they're just amazing people. And so it's meeting people like that that allowed me to first visit film sets. I visited my first film set in Madrid when Brian Usna, who had met at a festival again had said, uh, oh, I'm going to be shooting in Spain. So if you show up in December, you can visit the set. And so I, I went and I called him from Madrid and was like, hey, Brian, I'm here. Can I come see the oh set? And he can believe it. And <laughs> and that he actually, he was true to his word. I got to visit for a couple of days. And when I left, he said, would you like to, um, would you like to write about this for Fangoria? Because no one's going to visit the set for this because it's too far. And so that was my first um, said visit for Fangoria. Oh it was the first God. time that I got into that. And then I got to go for the hostel movies in Prague and for Hills of Eyes in, in Morocco and being a little bit of their kind of European correspondent for a little bit. Oh, that's, oh, that's amazing. Awesome. Did you see the wow. lights flicker off? Yeah. It's the ghost in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the studio's haunted. But did you turn them up? No, they just randomly did. That it's the specter in the studio. <laughs> well, that it's was always Stuart been told. Gordon. Apparently, 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 the piano's haunted is what we've been told. So but, that yeah. was really. I thought it's weird, right? First, I kept looking at you, <laughs> no, and I'm like, you don't have. Vibes from home. I'm gonna turn out, turn it down. <laughs> if it goes Pangos back up gonna... again, I'm out. Right? <laughs> I'm out. That is so funny. That is so funny. <laughs> uh, speaking of Stuart Gordon, what would you say is one piece of advice that has really stuck with you from something that he told you back then over the years? From Stuart. Oh, I, I don't know if it's advice from him as much as who he was and how true he was to his taste and his independence and his, you know, he made movies that no one else could make. Sure. He was profoundly yeah. Stuart Gordon and he had interests that were so eclectic and interesting and diverse and, and unusual, like doing a play of Edgar Allan Poe's, just, you know, as a one-man show with Jeffrey Combs. What a brilliant idea. It was so great. And like things like that that he would do that were so out of the box. And I, I find that I always admired that a lot. And the fact that, you know, something like Reanimator, he just went and he didn't know how to make films. And he just kind of gathered his troupe and worked with Brian Usna and just came up with, like, figuring out the tone as he went and... It just, there was a spirit of adventure behind it that I've always found very appealing. What's your favorite Brian Usina movie? Oh, I'm going to go with the first one I saw, which was Return of the Living Dead 3. Oh, I was going to say the same thing. That's my favorite too. I love that fucking movie. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's wonderful. But again, Brian 
talking about adventure just would go have a deal in Indonesia and a deal in Spain and go wherever he gets to make those weird <laughs> movies of his. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. It's yeah. so cool. And at the time thinking, wow, you can just like find a deal in foreign country and just work there for 10 years and make those bizarre movies. And, and it's very yours at the same time. It just seems so appealing and so adventurous and cool. Did you ever see Return of Living Dead 3? I don't know. I think yeah. we did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With the girl who just like to feed herself, right? She keeps piercing herself and everything, <laughs> yeah. right? And having the pain to stop her from eating her fucking boyfriend. It's I think brilliant. that was my first gore movie. And it really, I remember <laughs> being intense. slightly queasy watching it. Yeah. yeah oh, it's wow. pretty intense. And Wayne Toth did the gore effects oh, no, on wow. that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> so let's talk about the spooky season and Halloween, a season you know and love, obviously. We're all obsessed with it. <laughs> How did that start for you? Well, again, being in Belgium, I didn't have any access to that. Uh, the movie Halloween was called The Night of the Masks in French, La Nuit des Masques. Oh. Um, and, and it talks about not Michael Myers, but Michel Meyer. And I remember there was a, a voiceover at the beginning when it says Haddonfield, Halloween. And yeah. It says Halloween, the day before All Saints Day. Just to explain oh, wow. to people, because yeah. at the time, no one knew what Halloween was in Europe, and, or at least in French-speaking Europe. And uh, so it was completely different completely different culture and um i don't remember exactly how i heard about it i think it might be seeing posters from one of the halloween sequels okay and seeing the pumpkins and just being like what what the hell is this and then understanding there's a there's a holiday that's about this shit that's you know <laughs> wow. the things that i celebrate all year and then and just lost my shit and and i remember decorating a, a the the attic in my mom's house or my parents house for Halloween and then having them come up and like they, they were supposed to dress up. And then from the moment that I'd heard about Halloween every year I would celebrate and it would always be the same kind of thing. I would cook something absolutely disgusting because I couldn't cook at all. So I'd make like mashed potatoes with like green coloring, uh, food coloring, and then you know, like, bizarre cheese that I would put in, whatever the hell I could do. And then invite a couple of victims and then everybody would dress up. And my dad would say, oh, it's a pagan holiday. It's American. I'm not interested. And then and then he would show up at the moment where it would start getting, you know, there's always a moment of the night where you start telling stories. It's a little bit spooky. And he would somehow, I don't know how he knew but he would always pick that time and he would come down with my dad was a uh, a college professor and he was into um history of art and history of religion and he was also uh, sometimes an archaeologist so he had all those weird old masks and all those things from like pre-columbian america and from mexico and from and he would wear one of the spookiest masks and he'd walk down wearing that shit and just kind of walk super slowly and pretend it's not him and then by the end when when he would finally be like okay Okay, he wouldn't say a word, but you could see in his attitude, was like, okay, I'll take off the mask. And he'd put a, a, a stocking on his face and it'd make his features look completely, completely the boogeyman. It was so cool. So and he, he was into it. He did it at least three years in a row and it would always get us. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Awesome. Well, I love the misdirect of like not being into it and then oh, showing up in the year, full. <laughs> every year. Oh, you're celebrating that pagan <laughs> holiday. Yeah. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> Do you know if it's changed? In Brussels, like it, it went a little through, more. Yeah, I went through a phase where you could find stuff in shops everywhere, and yeah. so I would stock up on all that stuff. You know, all the the classic horror decorations and all that. And then it kind of became a commercial thing, and then it went away because it didn't really. No one really picked up on it. Um, <gasps> no one made parties, and I don't That's know where so it's at now. But at least people knew what it was, which was good. <laughs> so, what was like your first American Halloween experience yeah. like? Oh, it was it was kind of awesome it was um with friends who lived in beverly hills i was visiting 
they lived across the street from um, Larry King. So we went to knock on Larry King's door. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was wild. It was just, it was really cool. And it was a bunch of horror filmmakers and we all dressed up. And yeah, it was a really, really good time. Oh, that's Mike amazing. Mendez, who's been on the podcast, yeah. was one of them. <laughs> he was one of them. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Oh, that's great. Wow. First Halloween in America with Mike Mendez. That <laughs> is amazing. You know, I met Mike t- over 20 years ago at that festival in Brussels. No way. Oh, yeah. Wow. And Joe Bashara, he was with them. Were they playing like they was were a convent, convent or something? Yeah. 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 Yes. Did you love that movie? I loved that loved movie. It. Loved, loved it so much that they, they screened it on the night where the audience award was being voted on and I'd already given my ballot and I tried to get my ballot back so I could put the convent on it. Yeah. That movie blew us away. He was one of the first guests that we wrote down on our target list yeah. when we started this show too. It was Mike Mendez yeah. and I remember actually having the opportunity. He brought us donuts when he came. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he flaked on us three times. <laughs> he <That's> did. Right. <laughs> he did. That's Put right. in his defense, you so know. if you were not going to show tonight, my question is, are you hanging out with Mike Mendez? Because <laughs> I will never let him down with this one. Oh, man. I love the convent so much. Though, the Like the day glow blue, like black light blood that he used for yeah. everything. It was so, so cool. It's I so love cool. that There's movie. a, I, I did an episode of American Horror Story recently that has a scene on Halloween. Because, yes, I got obsessed with Halloween from the moment that I heard about that holiday, like it's still to this day is, is such a big deal. But uh, there's a moment where one of the, I don't know if you've seen the episode, but there's a, a character who's walking through a street full of party people. And there's a woman who just, you see it for a split second. She says something like, cool costume and she's dressed like a nun from the convent like she has that makeup on oh that's cool <laughs> so neat so what stuff do you like to do uh, halloween wise now that you've kind of established your routine your your holiday routine now you know there's the haunts and the screenings and the parties and all that is pretty standard in la it's the two-month season of doing all the the halloween things that we all go to and love but some of my favorite things are pumpkin carving parties which last year, because of the pandemic, the only way we could do it was outdoors. And they live across the street from this big graveyard. So we did it in the graveyard, which was really cool. I love going out of L.A. and going apple picking, which is the corniest stuff in the world. That's but great, it's one of my though. favorite days. I love it. And then nice. there's like corn maze and, and there's a pumpkin patch. And it's just it's so Halloween-y, you know, yeah. it's just, it feels fall like for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you usually do on like the actual day? I go to my friend Bill Malone's house and they live in this uh, neighborhood that gets flooded with trick-or-treaters and we spend all night. It's him, it's uh, Mick Garris and a couple of other people and we give out candy to trick-or-treaters and then we go and watch a movie, like an old Universal movie or something on on the big screen. Do you have a favorite maze that you like? You you talk about going to haunts and things like that. Yeah, I love knots. Knots is Knots is badass, great. Right? It's really Reign fun. of Terror is awesome. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah I don't want to talk too much about that one because I don't want everybody to right exactly take up on the right. Fact that it's awesome. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I don't want to spoil it for but but yeah. Top of a Gold's Gym, right? Yeah. On top of a Gold's Gym, you wouldn't think <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it really. Is. <laughs> okay. Okay. We can strike that from the record if we need to keep it a little <laughs> secret. Um, in what ways did your debut feature? help you learn to kind of adapt all the things you've learned from talking to filmmakers and your years of watching films and writing and reading and learning into actually being able to kind of speak in the language of cinema yourself, being on set and being able to articulate an original story through the lens of a camera and and having your own universe to play with cinematically. What was that school like? How did you teach yourself that? How much of that did you kind of take with you into Soulmate? That's a good question. Some might say I have not learned much. 
the interesting thing is that you can spend a lot of time on set watching filmmakers and still have no idea what the hell they're doing <laughs> because all the work is done in prep and all the work is yeah. in your head and it's not on set you don't learn anything by looking at what directors are doing mostly i'm work i'm walking around with my hands in my pocket and <laughs> i remember seeing when i went to see the set with brian usna i remember seeing him just walk around just looking like he's the boss and <laughs> you know and i was like oh he's so cool is that the job you just walk around <laughs> with your hands in your pocket <laughs> that's awesome yeah. and now i realize it's just that when you don't have a specific thing to do because people are lighting or whatever you're in the way so you try to just look like and just be right here. Yeah. Just you know, stay out of the way. It's a bit of a mystery. I think a lot of movie watching, um, making short films really helped. I think that I've learned a lot about the business, on the other hand, from being around filmmakers, for sure. But the, how you craft shots, how you... It's studying other films, I guess. It's, um, it's also kind of listening to... <laughs> corny as it sounds, again, it's listening to your instincts and listening to... Uh, believing in yourself is a big, big thing to learn that I learned on my first few features. I guess that I'm still learning to a degree, like everybody still kind of learns. But I remember on my first short films, I was very impressed because I had a great DP and he was very experienced. And I would say, here's the shot that I would like. And he would always say, well, if we go wider, it's going to look better. And I knew what I, I knew how I wanted to cut it. And so I would say, no, no, I think that we should do it this way. And by the end of the day, he would say, well, I guess you know better, right? And <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I did, because in the edit, when by that point, I was like, oh, I'm really upsetting a guy who knows much better than I do, so I should go with what he says. Those shots didn't work in the edit that I wanted. So it was a great experience to learn that you have to go with... A DP will know what looks good, but doesn't necessarily know how it serves the story. I right. mean, some amazing at that. But but by and large, your job is to have the global view of it. And everybody has a specific job, but you have to be the glue between all of it. And for that, the only way you can do it is by having a vision that you believe in your, yourself, first of all, and then that you can explain to others and, and hopefully that. Yeah, that that's translates on on screen, but you can only just kind of go with what you believe is right, and and that was a it's still a learning curve to be honest. I don't wow. know if that answers your question. No, at all. no, it seems for like sure, a for sure. Wave. Like there's a, a scene in Tales from Halloween, for instance, where as a viewer you might see a, a fleeting scene. I'm just going to pick a random scene from them from the, your short Grimwing Ghost. Again, as a viewer, you could see it as a fleeting moment. It might not mean anything to you as a viewer, but when you slow it down and you see a simple shot like. Alex Esso driving in a car and the camera's in the car with her. And then it cuts to a scene of a car on the outside of her car, almost hitting her. And then it goes back into her car. As far as a viewer, you might think, Oh, it's just a fleeting moment. But when you break down that scene, you think, well, there's, you got to think there's got to be a camera here. It's got to get this angle. It's got to be in with her. Then you want a shot exterior of this car going by. Then you want to come back in to see her reaction on her face. Then you're back in the car with her. When you start breaking things down like that, mm -hmm. it gets really complicated yeah. for it something that's just does, a couple but it seconds, right? Because the thing is you don't need to edit before you, I mean, it helps if you have a clear idea of how you're going to edit it later. And thankfully I'm not too bad of that right usually it cuts the way that i sort of imagined um although i'm not an editor and i think that that background would help a lot um but but it all you have to think of is how many different angles do i need and how and then the way that you cut it you find that in post so that's that's fine but funnily about that scene um it's dave parker driving the truck that goes past oh wow <laughs> 
I was I was looking for a reason for her to stop her car, and I was watching Scream Four, and there's something like that that happens at the beginning. There's a um, a moment where they have to stop the car very quickly because they didn't pay attention. There was a car driving past, and I was like, "Great, I'll steal that." And, uh, and so you get inspired by random shit sometimes, and you know it plays a different function. It doesn't. The scene is completely different from Scream Four. It's not the same purpose, but somehow sometimes you watch something and it sparks something in your mind. It's like, how about I apply that to this in yeah. a different way right. and yeah it's and also on that when we shot that we uh got stopped by cops which is also oh funny. that one scene yeah yeah really yeah so you didn't have to like you didn't permit it was kind of run and gun just no it was more because we were driving like crazy people we were <laughs> oh, going no. super slow and stopping <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so, so they were like, like are you on? are you drunk yeah. and then alex so and i were sitting in the back i was sitting with the the camera the dp at the front jen michael losada kind of hid <laughs> kind of slid down with this hat on his face and alex and i just it was so funny to see that that dynamic at play how he would go like oh a cop i better look away and alex and i just all smiles like hello what can we do for you officer oh, that's so funny <laughs> <laughs> and how did you so how did you land on on Alex? Were you a fan of her her work? I just seen Staria, Staria. Staria. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's the same kind of like it's exactly what I'm talking about. Is just kind of sometimes things just happen that give you that. I just happened to go to Beyond Fest or wherever they were having the screening, and I was about to start casting. And I saw starry eyes and I met the filmmakers and then they introduced me to Alex and I'm like, Alex is awesome. I got to speak to her. And then I, we exchanged emails a couple of days later. I just asked her if she wanted to be part of it. And she, amazingly, she was completely game. That cast was amazing. It had Barbara Crampton, right? The the, the muse of Stuart Gordon, as I refer to her. Who's in there too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, She's in there. And Lynn Shea. But Stewart is there as the he's dressed as Sherlock Holmes. Oh, is that him? <laughs> yeah, oh my god, yeah, that's awesome! And Lisa Marie is sitting next to him uh, from Mars Attacks and Ed Wood. Oh, and, well, I saw uh, Mick Garris yeah, obviously Mick Garris in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's awesome. Fascinating. Did you handpick all these people? Were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and you're just like, yeah, guys, really you want to do this that's with cool. me? Yeah. Oh my god! Wow. And it felt shooting that scene felt like a Halloween party. Oh, yeah. like, all my friends are here and, and we're all in costume and this is oh, it's so fun and then I got to work my, my, with my dog and she's amazing and she was in Soulmate too that's and, right and yeah. this Anubis, Anubis yeah, yeah. And Grim Grinning Ghost, had you been to the Haunted Mansion oh, at yeah. that point yet? Oh, yeah. 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 Were you just and like, I was oh my God. with the Haunted Mansion from way before I even visited America. Really? Oh, yeah. How did There's you? There's a Mickey Mouse magazine when I was little, had a special on Disneyland, and Euro Disney did not exist at the time. It was, I'm old enough that it was before that. And uh, there was a whole two pages about. Uh, the haunted mansion and i kept looking at those pages thinking this is the most amazing shit like this is there's a house that has like ghosts and this is i've kept that i I think i've lost the magazine now but i kept it for at least like 25 years wow did it feel like an impossible goal to attain to go see that at the time yeah kind of like this is now i'm never gonna go there (laughs) i just have to read this magazine how old were you when you first went to disneyland i know you were I was, uh, yeah, well, when I moved here in 2005, you took me to Disneyland for the first time. I was fucking blown away. What the hell were you doing all that time? I was up in Canada, and again, it was like, I would see a (laughs) Disneyland board game. That was as close as I got to Disneyland. It was not something my parents, you know, it it wasn't attainable to us as kids. And when I moved down, and she took me to Disneyland for the first time, I couldn't believe my mind. Like, I got blown away. Mm -hmm. Pirates, pirates in Haunted Mansion. Like, 
because you, you try and explain those rides to someone who hadn't been to Disneyland, it sounds like you're on drugs. They're the coolest. You know, They're it's so impossible great. to yeah. explain. But anyway, yeah, your yeah. first time. First oh, time my Disneyland. first time was the one in Paris. And um, I didn't get to go for a couple of years after it opened, but I think it was like 12 or something like that when I first Phantom went Manor. Place. Phantom Manor is great i've heard i've only so heard good. and seen it's was it beautiful. vincent price vo- voicing no, it at the time no, they, it was some french guy okay. um i think now it's the vincent price yeah like they've, they've revamped it i think it's it's vincent price's voice but um yeah that was my first time in disney was was in paris and then i got the the, the yearly pass i even dated someone who worked there so i would go a lot of times oh that's, a, that's like a good take, call there's a there's a, yeah, <laughs> a very call. convenient there's a train <laughs> that went directly from brussels to disneyland paris oh, wow. so it's so easy to just kind of go as often as they could (laughs) chilling adventures of sabrina Mm-hmm. An insane fucking show. Yes. So do- I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything so dark on TV done in such a really unique, creative way. That show is mind blowing. You end up in the writers' room for that show and, and do an episode. How did that happen? Are you a fan of the show before? Did it was something you pursued? No, I was there on season one. We didn't know what the show was going to be at the time so it wasn't and, even and out yet no by the no, time no, no, you were no. in they the... hadn't shot a single thing they, I, I worked on every episode what? except the pilot and the second one like those first two were written and um yeah it came out i have a great manager kaylee marsh and she um she gave me a phone call and she just <laughs> she said you're meeting this uh you're, you're meeting this showrunner tomorrow morning friday morning and in the hopes that you'll get the job to start on monday and so I went and met him and then Friday afternoon. So a few hours after meeting him, I got the job. And then the next weekend I was, uh, you know, two days later, I was, uh, I was a writer. So um, I didn't know you were part of like the act actively yeah, every yeah, episode in that room. Yeah. Well, Holy that's the thing. when you, when you work in writer's room, you might be just credited for this one yeah. episode, but you pitch on everything. And then the way that Holy. this one works is that everybody kind of writes some scenes. So there's someone who's assigned to putting it together and to putting their own stamp on it. But you do get to write a few pages on various different things. And so there's episodes where I wrote scenes that made it completely verbatim into it. And there's some where it changes. And it's 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 an interesting process. I learned a lot doing that. Were there like specific guidelines or like you can't go this dark? You can't show this. <laughs> well, they fucking did. Uh, there were no guidelines. I don't know if there's any guidelines. The language. <laughs> really? The, yes. the language yeah. was a well, guideline? Yeah. Did yeah. you not notice? They didn't never swear nope. at that show. Interesting. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. do that. I was distracted by the massive demons <laughs> and... Uh, Orgies. Orgies. Yeah, what it's and like. cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it, it, it read much darker on the page too. And so the conversations we would have in the room were fascinating because we had someone who knew all about witchcraft she she lived in salem she was she was really really steeped into biblical culture as well we'd have other people who were pagans we had like everybody's kind of a horror nerd so it was really interesting conversations but the result would read really dark like there's the thanksgiving episode that was like all about eating one of the witches it was fucking dark and then um roberto's tastes are so specific and so kind of he has a visual style that makes everything feel like, oh, I'd show that to a kid and you'd be fine. You know, that it feels like somehow, even though the material is so dark, it feels like 
It's so out of this world somehow. It's such yeah. a different, such yeah. a sweet cool polarity. world. It's, it's very beautiful. bizarre. Yeah. yeah, our daughter got into it oh. hardcore, and then we would watch like a couple oh, episodes ahead, and we even... got to the orgy one. Remember? And we <laughs> were like, about that. "All right, he's gonna pause on that one for a little while." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "I love Sabrina. You're gonna love this." And when you're 18, you're gonna love it's this. It's such a good and show, though. My God, we started watching it, and then I was like, "Oh my gosh, she's already seen this episode." Trevor wouldn't. <laughs> Like, we're such bad parents. Like, what is going on? And then, you know, I had to say, we're going to save the rest till you're older. Like, I thought it was cute. Like, the one that I saw when I was a little kid. Oh, right. But she has no interest in watching that one. No, 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 no. No. She wants to. Was that Melissa Joan Hart's uh, version? Yeah. She was like, what is this? Animatronic cat and everything. But she lives in this house. Right. That's true. She can deal with it. She can deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. She was. She got obsessed with it. I think we should let her. We'll let her get it. You know what? It it wasn't so much the horror. It was the sexual the sexual part of it yeah, yeah. that yeah. really I was like okay this is not appropriate I love for... that show did that well so and that's the funny thing is that when you look at Riverdale and Sabrina the material that Sabrina deals with is so much darker yeah but it feels like a younger show than Riverdale because yeah. it doesn't have that much of the sex element to it right. season one of Sabrina is totally fine like yeah. I'd show that to you kid yeah yeah but yeah. then again I don't have kids so I have no idea <laughs> probably have wildly inappropriate ideas of what it's so like all the incantations much. and spells and stuff they sound fucking legit yeah. is no, a lot bullshit. of that base is on it no it's, it's by and large is bullshit but, yeah, but, but it be. would take inspiration from things sure. and, and you know we, we've kind of tried to it's not so much that there was any intention of grounding things because this show is not grounded yeah. it was more kind of um, finding inspiration and drawing elements from cultures and, and it's it's a melting pot of different things and, and that was part of the fun. Yeah. Tell us about meeting uh, Mike Flanagan and your right. journey to episode eight. Right. Um, so I met Mike at a convention at Monsterpalooza, I think. Really? Years ago, by chance. And I was on, I think on the Blumhouse panel, just funny. Okay. Probably for I like Ouija, Ouija Origin of Evil maybe? Or? No, it was just... If I remember well, and I hope I do, it's Ryan Torek was running a panel that was called the Blumhouse panel where various people were discussing, I can't even, it was the future of horror, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was at either Midsummer Scream or Monsterpalooza. And and on the panel for Blumhouse, which I just worked for, was Sandy King, who had never met, and she produced my new movie, and Mike Flanagan. And so it was just, it's bizarre that I didn't stay in touch with any of these people at the time, and I didn't know any of these people at the time, but since then I've worked with them all, which is pretty rad. Uh, but Mike, I I think he'd made Oculus, maybe maybe Widgie 2, or maybe Hush, I can't, like it was fairly right, yeah. early-ish. But I thought he was so great and I went to say hi and he welcomed, before I could even say, hey, I love your stuff. He was like, oh my God, you made Soulmate. I love Soulmate. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> but I guess he did. Oh, yeah. Based on that, he, um, years later, he got in touch and to do a, an episode of Bly Manor, which, you know, it still baffles me to this day that he managed to see something in that movie that fitted his, what he was looking for for this so specifically and, and. And then trusted me with it and then talked Netflix into hiring this person who had no TV experience just because she'd made this $200,000 movie in Wales. <laughs> you know? Right, right, it's right. Bonkers, but, but it, but I it's bonkers. But I, I, I can see why he would like it, though, because that's his style. He likes that dialogue, the conversation between these characters. And you know what I'm saying? 
so I could totally see why you would like that movie. I'm like, no surprises here. One of the things that he says, and it's where I feel like we, we meet very well, because that's something that I've always kind of mentioned as well, is that he feels, I believe, that story needs to be led by character and by emotion. Right. And that's what I think, too, is character and, and finding emotions that are not necessarily just, like I was saying earlier, just scaring you is what grounds your story somehow is what makes it like the core of it needs to be something else and just, Oh, it's going to be scary. Mm -hmm. So that's, and I think that that's what he saw in that. And somehow, I don't know. I, would I have given myself that job? Probably not, you know, but somehow he did. And it, I think it paid off because it was, it was so perfectly my taste and so perfectly like the kind of Gothic horror that I adore. And, and it was such a beautiful opportunity, but so yeah, it all um, came from soulmate actually curious about that experience too with Bly is that you know not only you get a chance to learn from someone like Mike on this you know world that he created and he's letting you run your fingers through I guess is a good way to put it you're also getting to be guided and informed by a wonderful troupe he's created that's become family to him right second nature Kate Siegel obviously and Katie Parker who's mm -hmm. been with him since Absentia, in Katie Parker's case, in what ways did they help inform you entering that world? Do you get anything from them? You know, do you learn anything from them as much as you would from him? The interesting thing is that when you work for Mike on those shows, and, and again, it's a fairly new thing that he's been doing because he's yeah. you know, primarily a director. So the, by the way, just the fact that he can trust other people with stuff that he would usually direct, I really admire because I could not let go of my babies kind of the way that he does. But he's very, very good, again, at marrying the right person with the right material. And then he'll have an initial conversation with you to see what you have in mind. And if he feels like you've, you've earned this trust in a way, like you're going in the right direction... He just lets you do your thing. And it's beautiful because it's just, you know, you get to you get to bring a little bit of yourself. And so I always feel like what I get to do for Mike feels very Mike Flanagan. But I also feel a lot of myself in it, even though it's his text, it's his words, it's his style. It's what he envisioned, hopefully. But it's also it also feels I feel very personal personally about them. Like sure. I feel like the Bly Manor episode very much represents me in some ways. That still doesn't answer your question. I'm realizing I'm going in no, no, that way again. But but the thing is, he does trust you with those amazing people. And they all have the same attitude of, you're not just a guest like you sometimes are in TV. And you just show up and you're the one who's just kind of doing the job. And then you're, you're the one person who's not staying as long as the others. Yeah. They welcome you and they give you their trust. And Kate and Katie definitely did that. And it was fantastic and from the initial conversations that i had with them when we were in prep it was you kind of just want to preserve that trust and, and and build it and just hope that they'll go with it and and i think we bonded very quickly also because the material was such that it was very personal to them and it felt like something that it was important to go fairly deep into the conversation of what this was about and what we were trying to express with it but yeah after that they were they were just so you know there's such fantastic actors both of them and they they go with i would usually let them do the first take they do whatever they want and then i would go and adjust if necessary and they would generally just trust what i what i would ask yeah. for and they but from the first take they would usually get it like nail it and and right. they're fantastic they were just bringing different nuances and yeah 
Is it intimidating the first day that you work with Kate Siegel? Yes, a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) 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 That whole group of people have, they're really warm, inviting people. They're wonderful. Yeah. They're truly wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was one of the things is that the work was wonderful and exciting and genuinely just feeling so privileged to be there and so freeing and so kind of, oh my God. And on top of that, I get to work with like, I don't need to beg to have a crane or a balloon to like yeah. the set or like those <clears> things <throat> are there. And like those beautiful sets that you get to play with and oh God, all that stunning, stuff is right? just, it just feels like such a gift. But on top of that, you have those, the friendship of those, like this, this group of people who, who generally, I mean, again, sounds like a cliche, but really welcome you and really treat you like you're one of them. And, and, when we did Bly, it was before the pandemic and there was one night where Mike organized a dinner and, and we would just like nerd out over the same movies. And and, mm. and it there was such a clear sense that all those people love each other and get along beautifully. And there's there's no there's no bullshit between people. It's it's pretty awesome. You're going to be working on the next project as well. You've already wrapped, right? Yeah, yeah. I did two episodes of The Midnight Club. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So exciting. So cool. And then it was fun to watch Midnight Mass because a lot of people from Midnight Club are in Midnight Mass, but oh, I haven't yeah. seen the show. Interesting. So, yeah. It's like, oh, that's what they, oh God, she's evil. <laughs> wow. Are you allowed to say anybody or, or is that all still under wraps? I can't say anything, okay. but. Um, all right. But yeah, it was it was really fun to see little cameos from people and then oh, seeing where that comes from. When sure. You say, oh, that's the show that they've just made together. And, right. and And the parts are not, you know, some people who play leads in one are smaller parts in the other. And, yeah. And, and they're playing very different characters. But oh, that's yeah, gotta be awesome. fascinating. Yeah, awesome. yeah. The Boo Crew will be right back. Man that is born of woman. What mysteries beyond the grave are in the oblong box? Will you rest in peace? My brother Edward has died. Where is he going to be buried? As soon as you found another body. The oblong box, six feet four inches long, 24 inches deep and 24 inches wide. Will it be your home for the rest of your unnatural life? My God, my brother was buried alive. Now. For the first time, American International Pictures presents Edgar Allan Poe's classic tale of the restless dead and the subterranean world of unspeakable horror with those masters of the macabre, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee. The oblong box in color is rated M, suggested for mature audiences. Dead and Breakfast, your episode of Creepshow <laughs> that you did with Greg Nicotero. <laughs> nice. Unbelievable, by the way. Allie Larder and C. Thomas Howell. C. Thomas Howell. And it looks like it was shot in the The house. Spinster yeah. House. <laughs> yes. yeah. So I had to that ask house. you about, yeah, the Spinster yeah. House. It's got secret passage where, you know, tilt the candle thing or the light sconce and the door trap, trap door opens. So... The outside of the house is one thing. I'm assuming the inside of the house is all on set somewhere and in some warehouse or what? No, I wish. No. So the deal with Creepshow is when you show up, you it's it's as if you were prepping two mini features in seven days. What? So you show up. And in the case of this, there was no space on the it was one of the last ones to be shot for the season. So there was no space in the soundstage to build a lot of stuff. So a lot of the episodes were shot on the soundstage. But for this one, which is very production design heavy. We had to go and find a location. So we found this house, which is actually 
and this has been bought since, but it was on the market and <laughs> no way! And it's pretty cool looking. Nice um, In, interior and ex- yeah, exterior inside and outside. Wow. Holy and shit! We we would just have to figure out. Okay, this room we can kind of put a wall here and make it look like it. Kind of try to retrofit the script into this location somehow. And there's a couple little pieces that we shot on stage because there's no choice because that's just kind of. You know, you can't have a floor open right. and then falling into a, right. a pit, clearly. <laughs> um, but other than that, it was all it was all this fantastic production designer who just went in with very little time and managed to make it look amazing. And, and, and the house was kind of had been abandoned for a couple of years. I think it used to be a like a like a restaurant or something like that. Oh, wow. And she made it look like this super cool, spooky old house. So it was, Where was, it, was it? great. In Atlanta, just outside wow. Atlanta. And did you have input on the casting? Not for that one. I did, but then it turned out to be, it's, it's, you know, it's, when you, when you cast names and, and especially for TV, sometimes the process is a little bit different. So we looked at a bunch of people and then it turned out that the specific people that they wanted were available and then, and they turned out to be those amazing people. Definitely not complaining. I love seeing uh, C. Thomas Howell. Cause I mean, I go back to the eighties to the hitcher, yeah. one of those movies that disturbed me when I was young watching mm-hmm. that movie. And I'm like, you know, he's made other movies of Walking Dead and some horror, you know, shorts here and there, but it's great to see him again. And know. I felt like it feels on screen like he's having fun. Right. And that was yes. really cool yep. to watch. Yeah. And then Iman Benson, who plays Morg, the blogger, who's really, really good. I remember when, when we left, I, I hadn't seen her show before that, so I wasn't familiar with her work. But on the last day, I was like, I want to work with you again. She's in Midnight Club. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, She's the lead of Midnight Club. Wow. So I worked with her twice in like six months. Which that's awesome. Really cool. And then jumping over to American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Right. So how is it going from your experience in television with Mike Flanagan's world to Greg Nicotero to this massive machine that is, you know, Ryan Murphy, uh, Glee and all these wonderful shows, you know, <laughs> popular that I love that he did. And this this multiple Emmy winning juggernaut of a show. What is the different feel in that? For yeah, you? Every show is very different. And, and what's expected of you is different. Sure. And the attitude of people is different. And, and and I was a little bit anxious when I started American Horror Story because, you know, I love the show for one thing, but it felt like such a big show and such a big machine that's been on the tracks for such a long right, time right. and with people who are so experienced. And I felt like it was, it's bizarre when you come in and, and, and it's the fourth episode and they've been playing those characters for all that time. And then you have to tell those incredibly amazing actors how to play their part. And it's, you know, it's kind of... you. you I, I look at it from their perspective and I can't help thinking they must be like, why is this woman talking to me? You know, I know what I'm doing. So it's, it's, you have to be a little bit aware of that, but also clearly do your job and, and, and understand what the job of a TV director is in regards to directing actors and, and, and the limits of what you can bring and what the voice that's already established already is. But the thing is American horror story, the crew and the cast are so nice there's such nice people that from the first day that I was on set, I felt very comfortable. They had this amazing DP who was very, very collaborative. And that the moment you have that relationship click, it makes everything so much easier. The cast were wonderful. On my first day, I worked with Macaulay Culkin, who's the sweetest mm-hmm. guy, uh, and Francis Conroy, who yeah. was just wonderful. 
and uh, Angelica Ross, who's such an icon. And and those were the three that I worked. Oh, and Dennis O'Hare on the first day. So that was my initiation into American Horror Story, my first day there. <laughs> and I felt like all of them were so sweet and so welcoming. And again, it's kind of, it's, it's not the same feeling as Bly because it doesn't have that kind of, it's not quite the same, but it, but it has that same kind of, well, you're welcome, and and we want to know what you have to bring to this, and this kind of openness to a new voice into it, and it right. felt it felt really good. Which episode did you do again? Was it Blood Buffet? Yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the flashback Halloween? Yeah, episode. Yes. this is awesome, yeah. man. Awesome. There's um, the shot setups and things. Do you get to have complete reign over that? Yeah. Like, there's a great shot where she's introducing the the pills, the black pills, and they got that negative space that you're letting kind of linger. Look up the staircase, like little moments like that. Is that I that love would that be your? Shot. Yeah, I love it was a great. Like shot. That, the one with the staircase <laughs> yeah, and yeah, the yeah. shadow and the, yeah. Oh, I, I love, love that, that shot. shot. Yeah, I love that stuff. <laughs> I'm so glad that it made it in. Because also when you're doing TV, you do your director's cut and then you're recut by other people. Oh wow! On. This one actually was very close to my director's cut, but but they have to cut for time. There's you know it's. TV works a different way from features and that's so sometimes it's always fun to see the final result because you haven't been through seeing the music stage and the VFX stage. So when it airs, you're actually you can watch it and have fun and just kind of go, oh, great. I love what, right. what they made with it. But um, don't remember your question. Oh, yes. The shots. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. No, you completely have freedom for that. And they encourage you to go if you have the time during the day, if you've done all your coverage they really encourage you to go and do what you want. Some signature, your yeah. own signature oh, yeah. shots. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And build your own, really, put really your own voice into it. Yeah. That's amazing. And the dialogue in that episode is as Ryan Murphy shows are, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Especially between uh, Francis and her husband, Ray, it gets very intense. Yeah. What is it like to direct those super dialogue heavy scenes between two extremely experienced <laughs> well, that's the thing. They're so actors. good that it, it's it's actually not i mean my job is so hard i have to direct <laughs> such compli- you know it's no it's they're wonderful <laughs> um i always again i always like to let people do what they want on the first take and yeah. then if i feel like it needs adjustments then i'll come in and i'll discuss the kind of emotion that i feel we want to convey with the scene and that i think they're probably what the point of their journey is like you never want to tell them who the character is obviously because they know that so much better than you do but what you can tell them is how you think that person might feel that that moment that might need a slight adjustment and uh and yeah it's it's like you know those performers are so fantastic that you go in and you make the slightest adjustment and they turn that into something beautiful i got to work with sarah paulson and she's so good at just and she brings so much nuance into what she's doing and it's yeah it's it's pretty pretty great that is really cool it must be like being a songwriter right right and like watching Billie eilish sing your song that you wrote or something yeah. <laughs> that's really cool Some sally song yeah so yeah we're gonna go see that by the way Bastards. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I hate you. Nice. <laughs> well, we had to. Scarlet. Of course. Of yeah, course. For those listening, Danny Elfman's doing a show, and Billie Eilish is playing Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Pretty, pretty insane. Let's take it to the manor. Speaking of that heart that you talk about, right? This story is all heart. Yeah. It's based on this relationship between a grandmother and her grandson, which is a very unique take. It's something that. You know, you don't really see all that much of. So talk about just kind of developing that story and, and attaching the story to this relationship. Right. It's it's funny because I've been talking so much lately about where the story comes from. But the truth is, I 
don't remember what the first spark of it was. Huh. I know that I've always, the same way that I've always been into horror, I've always been scared of the thought of dying and aging and seeing my mom age or my parents and, you know, as a little kid. And I must have been under eight because we were living in this house that we left when I was about eight. I, I remember lying down in my bed and thinking, it's going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't change that. And you're not even thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the people around you at that point. And then you reach a point in your life where you start thinking, well, shit, I'm aging. This sucks. And that to me happened when I was like 15. I started hating my birthdays. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, it's been a journey. But and then and then what has to happen happened. Like I saw my granddad be moved into a nursing home and my dad move into a nursing home and, and that left a strong impression on me and, and felt like there's something both something that feels very personal and relevant to my own fears and my own anxieties, but also the fact that when you were in, in a nursing home, you don't get access to the code to get the to leave the house. No. You don't get to leave when you want. If you complain about something, if you try to run away from something, you might get locked inside your room. If you are scared of something, most likely people will think that you've imagined it. And and I'm saying all this with the greatest respect for nursing staff. Right, I sure, feel like this sure. job is incredibly difficult. Yeah. But when you look at the experience of going to a home and losing those little bits that make yourself who you are and those little bits of independence, I thought that was really scary. And it's a little bit like, I'm a huge fan, like everybody, I guess, of Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. And you look at that story and it's about something supernatural that's going to happen. But it's also about someone who's seeing every door be slammed in her face and every bit of who she is kind of being turned against her and people around her making decisions for her and, and losing her autonomy. And so it's there's a kind of a, a very established horror path that you go through when you move to a place like that in some ways. So I wanted to put that on screen somehow. And and and. and what I try to every time I explain where this comes from, I always feel obligated to say this is not a depressing movie. This is not like this is no. these are yeah. dark yeah. themes, yeah. Right. but I really think that I tried to make something that's uplifting and and entertaining and not like this is not the her- the, the hereditary of old age. Right, right. <laughs> you know? I've often I've often uh, joked with Lauren and Trevor and I said, Hey, old people fucking scare me, you know? Yeah. And as a you know, lighthearted joke, right? But the reason for that, because I actually spent years in nursing homes years wow and that is the most terrifying experience of my life because i was going in daily to visit like grandma or or, or one case my dad for example and my dad was there only because he was recovering from surgery and he had a, he had a two-year recovery wow. so going there daily and then you see these patients that are talking to themselves some are some are punching the you know the, the nurses the nursing staff yeah, yeah. It, it you know here i am i'm 18 years old 20 years old watching this just stunned i'm like mm-hmm. here's a 90 year old woman straight out punch the guy you know but it's because you know her mind is gone you know she probably sees demons in the room she's fighting something you know and there's people that are just mumbling talking they're looking past you and then you look around and you're like is there something behind me like you're like who are you talking to you know i think you you captured the essence of that with small bits and pieces and, and some of these characters that we see in your movie that kind of brought back these memories. I'm like, oh no, this is so <laughs> fucking dark. I'm like, why? Well, why? I don't want it to be a bummer, so I'm hoping that it's, it's not. not too much of a... It's not a bummer. But it, there's little hints of that. It was heavier in the original drafts because I did see, you know, my dad had dementia mm-hmm. and that's why he ended up in nursing home and he was pretty young when that happened. And um, But he 
turned very quickly and and he would say things that felt very spooky he woke up my mom one night and said you don't mind people watching us when we sleep <laughs> and, you know yeah. and he's looking like he can see those people and, right. and what he must have gone through and there's part of it the fear of aging partly is how is my body how are my body and my mind going to evolve but beyond that i think and this is perhaps what the manner is more about how are other people going to see me how are people going to look at me how is at every stage of your life if you tell me you're 20 i'm going to speak to you in a different way than if you say that you're 45 right and and sometimes you still feel like you're 20 but you're 40 and it you know it, it's just everything is we're, we're put into those boxes and looked at in a different way according to the age that we're at especially women Oh, yeah. Spe specifically, it feels like there's an age where people have lost their usefulness. And um, and that's kind of what it's about. It's about the way that we look at the elderly and the way that we consider aging in general. And it's also about, I mean, the magic of holding on to your youth as well, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. by tethering it to that relationship that she has with her grandson. It that's really, right. You yeah. asked me the questions about the grandson. Yes. Thank yeah. you for <laughs> bringing me back to it. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to. The character of, her, of Judith, played by Barbara Hershey. Yes. I wanted her to be. I didn't want to go into that old people are scary kind of thing. Yeah. I wanted to go into you can be of a certain age and you can still be badass yeah. and you can still like, you know, swear and be funny <laughs> and be charismatic and, and yeah. not take shit from people. And, and you don't change. You're just, you know, your, your age changes, but you don't become someone else. And the way that we look at older people, especially in horror movies is very often there's like a switch where suddenly people drink tea and make crumpets. And like, that's never going to be me. So, you know, you stay the I same was, person. I was thinking about that today. Like, we like, it's at what so, age do I bake cookies? I'm like, because <laughs> I try to think about old people and just, I guess, the old people in my life. I guess they never really liked horror, but I'm just, I thought for a minute, I'm like, when I get really old, am I going to watch like Wheel of Fortune and not be into horror? <laughs> oh, no, look at Judith, man. She's, yeah. <laughs> she's watching she's, body bags, right? <laughs> she's dropping exactly. that bomb. Well, yeah, the older, right? the older older well you know the women in my life were older than me and, and are about the same age as judith they swear like motherfuckers yeah for one thing and they and you know and they're funny and they're very very smart and very sharp and and i wanted those kinds of women to be represented and i felt like going to the grandson finally that um the best way to show that was also to have a relationship with someone younger who treats her like an equal that right. she treats like an equal yeah. even though there's a there's no age barrier they get on really well they have the same interests the way that they dress is like different versions of the same thing yeah it's like, really cool you know, it's it's there used to be a scene where they would talk about the fact that they were watching horror movies together yeah, and, and right. it's that kind of bonding between two people and the age doesn't matter that much and he's the one who believes her when things happen and you know it was crafting that relationship was really it felt like it's not seen often enough and, and i thought it was really fun and oh. then on top of that they got to get on really well like barbara and the actor who plays the grandson nicholas alexander they got on really nicely so so that magic happened independently of me <laughs> when you wrote this did you picture and did you picture barbara hershey in mind for this or was that an, an afterthought i didn't have like, someone oh my God, specific in mind barbara fucking hershey is going to be in my mind. my god yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 now the moment that her name was mentioned it was, that seemed like such a good idea such a good fit 
And I, I'd never met her. I didn't know what she was like. And when she read the script, she wanted to meet and to discuss the script. And so I went to her house and we went through page by page, line by line, kind of figuring out what's the themes here, what are we trying to say here, why is she saying this? I, I don't think that this line reflects what we want to. And then we discussed them and and it felt like it's the kind of stuff that you feel is like a nightmare. Oh my God, the leading actress is going to tell me what the script needs to be before she says yes. Fuck. Um, <laughs> but actually felt very collaborative and her ideas were great. And and we got on very, very well. Like in the beginning, it was a little bit, in the fir- first few days, of you have to figure out what language right. to speak yeah, and, yeah. and how to, and she's very specific in what she likes and how she wants to be communicated with in terms of her acting. Um, but the moment that we figured each other out, we got on so well and it was just, it was such a great collaboration and she can be very goofy, which you wouldn't necessarily believe when you see her in Black Swan. Right. (laughs) Right. That's right. (laughs) Is she a horror fan? I don't think she is. I think she likes it. Okay. But I don't think she's particularly, yeah, she wouldn't wear horror t-shirts in real life. Right, right, right. (laughs) Right. That'd be awesome. It was amazing to me to see Jill Larson from the movie that literally we had to stop watching <laughs> yeah. like uh-huh. four days in a row, the taking of Deborah Logan. That movie was fucking on. Did you love that, that movie? movie? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Great. That was great. Was I, it a trip to meet? Yes. <laughs> Deborah yeah. Logan. Yeah. And she's so different. Yeah. Yeah. And she's such a wonderful, she's so sweet. She's such a wonderful actress. She can lift an eyebrow and express five different emotions right? just by, you know, the look on yeah, her face. Yeah, she's fascinating so to watch. She, and yeah, yeah, her and Deborah Logan, too, was just like, oh, my God. No, it was great to see her um, happy. <laughs> yeah. I had a, we had to watch like Disney movies in between, in between to Deborah like Logan, cleanse yeah. the yeah. palate yeah. and just get yeah. back in there. Um, yeah, that movie's pretty heavy. And you were mentioning the elements that they're both horror fans, right? Mm-hmm. Judith and Josh are horror fans. One thing that I really like that you do, and you do it in the manner as well, is uh, you put a lot of detail and thought into set design and what's seen around and make that tell a story as well. You know, her ballet shoes right. or, you know, whether it's a horror game that they play. So how how important is that to you in your vision when you're directing a piece or writing a piece to include that and make that part of the world? It's, it's 100% part of the fun. And I feel like one of the things I like one of the things I love about horror is the comfort of being surrounded with this world I mean you know it very well because your house is full of monsters there's comfort in being surrounded with monsters and with details and with like creating that world around you and creating that atmosphere and atmosphere is not just it's not just cinematography it's not just location it's details as well and I I wish I always wish we had more time. I always wish we had more budget so I can only do what's, you know, what's afforded yeah. to me at that yeah. moment. But I, I do love putting time into that. And I do love thinking about, you know, for Judith's house, for example, the, the, the house that she moves in, there's finding location, which is very much defining in the look of it and the atmosphere that you're going to have. But then once we were looking at, once we found the house, looking at the bedroom and thinking, how are we going to establish visually the fact that she is this modern person, this very youthful person who dresses really cool, who is kind of effortlessly chic in some ways, who has this really rich background that's creative and artistic and as a dancer. 
and then showing her like a fish out of water kind of in this element where everybody feels like they're already at an advanced stage and then they're and they feel much older and so it was things like bring knickknacks and wallpaper and things like that that yeah. kind of give that contrast between the stuff that she brings in and then the furniture that's already there and the and again that the, the the wallpaper that's already there and and bringing those little elements that help tell the story about the characters as well there's a bedroom with two of them two of her friends and when you go into that bedroom i mean that i could have shot that place all day it was beautiful like the job that they'd done was amazing but it feels again really rich and then there's tons of little details like we asked the actors to bring photos of themselves when they were young oh and so wow. there's a so lot of oh, yeah there's yeah. a lot of little details from things that where they would bring knickknacks that meant something from when they were young and so it's kind of putting together something that feels even if you don't necessarily see what it is, right. even if it's not consciously, right? Yeah. It's there. Yeah. And and it's there for them as well. It's it's there to help them ground themselves as well. So it's I always I, I feel like it makes a difference. Yeah. I'd like to believe it makes a difference. Did you invent the Frank and Crunch cereal? <laughs> <laughs> is that real monster cereal? It's not. It's uh I think it's um I'm not sure. There's like props that are non- non-licensed that you could use oh that's and, cool and, yeah i loved yeah. it i was like is that an axle yeah definitely creation? wanted to have some she monster own, cereal in there. monster cereal <laughs> that she made the board game was that the any board particular game is a real thing which oh. is it what is it it's called goth and it's a trivia board game oh wow the question is fake the question is and and it's i almost changed it because it was so nerdy it's abbott and castello meet frankenstein and i felt like most of the audience is going to have no clue what that is but <laughs> it felt like a nice kind of bridging generations kind of Yes. A movie and, and reference, and then he references it at the end, which I'm sure no one will pick up on. But maybe the two people who will will think that's the greatest shit. So who knows? It's still in there. Um, but yeah, the game is is a game I play with my friends. So it felt like it was a nice touch for sure, for sure. And the 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 curtain is that a shining shining uh, inspired no, it's pattern? Not. It's uh, no, it's I love that it looks like that. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it was picked just purely because we had very little time, very little choice at that point and we needed something that let just enough uh, shadow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. What an amazing coincidence, yeah. right? <laughs> that is so, so But cool. everything inside the house, there's a lot of patterns that remind you of the trees outside. There's a lot of paintings that have trees in them and again, I don't think that you pick up on it immediately but the office, the director's office has lots of little things that look tree-like and, and nature and like that's all over the house. So wow. we featured that quite a bit. And the house itself, the Golden Sun Manor is the, uh, I mean, the horror fans would know it as the house from house two. <laughs> yes. yes, the outside. Yes. Yeah, the outside. So the yeah. inside soundstage or in, no, interior the inside, house we shot in the house. Oh, you did? House two shot someplace else. Okay. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was and the house that. inside is gorgeous do people live there or is it just leased out to production? i don't know what's up now um it used to be a frat house at some point it was uh it's um it's owned by nuns right now interesting yeah so it used to be kind of a little convent so all those little rooms upstairs that they're in were all nuns living there Interesting. now there's still there's still a couple of nuns but they live in the guest house at the back and wow. so every once in wow. a while you'd see a nun in full like long flowing outfit walk past towards you which is always wow. kind of we've been blessed wow great. that's incredible you know i was thinking about a, a scene in the movie that carries on so it, it's a scene in the movie where barbara's character meets uh bruce davison's character roland mm -hmm. and from from that moment on i noticed her nuances in the dialogue and how him and his friends that live there speak to her like they're 
really polite, you know, and she's like dropping that font. She don't care. She's like, fucking bring me coffee, whatever. <laughs> but they're really cordial, very polite, very proper, right? Now, that also carries on to the third act, which, of course, we're not going to spoil. We're not going to talk about that. But I do want to do something very orthodox here, unorthodox, and I want to show you a picture and ask if this is what inspired the language and the third act. No. Okay. This is what inspired... This is what I kept looking at when I was thinking of the pace and of um, what we talked about earlier, like losing your autonomy and those kinds of elements. The ending was always that okay. before I thought of that. It's because it reminds yeah. me of the movie. No, you're the, totally right. When you think of it, there's a lot of stuff. And yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stuff in common, but it's not, that was not a direct source of inspiration. Oh, interesting. Could have been, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask this, and it, I mean, it might be a spoiler maybe have to do a spoiler alert i'm not sure but it's got to be covered is there is a spectacular creature design element yeah oh yeah no we can talk about okay that. we can yes, talk about it good yes. all right yeah let's I think get it's in. early enough in the movie that and okay. if i can't mention that then how do i sell right. this fucking movie there you go <laughs> the, the creature's spectacular so, yep. so talk about the design who came up with oh, it cool. is it based on anything that you had, had sketched or came up with or, or tell us through so, that process um, so that's always the best part of anything is when you get to do creatures right? and, and special effects it's so fun we went to a bunch of different houses um we ended up so so you go and you have your those discussions with people and you explain this is what i have in mind and then you listen to what they have to say and then and then i went into todd talker's company which was right here in burbank illusion industries sure and when I walked in, they'd already made a clay bust oh, that, oh, of what they thought should yeah. work. Full size, beautiful. They'd commissioned someone to do designs of what the full creature could look like. They were so excited about it. And it was so close already to what I had in mind. And and they were very excited because they say that usually directors come in and they're like, well, here's the script, do your thing. And I came in and I had like five or six pages of tons of little photos of like here's what the texture should be like and here's what the shape should be like and here's a couple of references of stuff that's been done like i you know i've referenced the the angel of death from hellboy 2 sure yeah, yeah. Like, i wanted something that had elements of a skull elements of like skeleton but also tree and also yeah, bark and like there were really a bunch old, of different you know like an ancient yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. when you look at the detail and obviously you don't get to showcase that so much because you don't want to full on lights a latex monster right. right like there's a way you can light latex and you can't show all the details but when you look at it i can look at it every day because it's now in my bedroom but um the, <laughs> oh, wow, the, the, awesome. there's like a spine in the back and the rib cage and like it looks like a skeleton but made out of vines and twigs and branches and it's so cool like it's so detailed and beautiful and yeah they did this amazing job and it was just the most exciting thing to see it come together a little bit by little bit. And then the first day that we sh shot the monster that I actually got to see him on the, like the whole suit on the actor was Halloween. So, oh, it's uh, so cool. Yeah, greatest <laughs> Halloween. Wow. Who nice. played the, who played the creature? Jo uh, Mark Joe Bichara. Sager. Okay. Yeah. Joe Bichara. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Joe Bichara. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you keep? So the, the cops. Did you yeah, actually yeah. like the full suit? I got the full suit. Yes, um, I only got it recently. Actually, that's amazing. To get it clear. Does it? Is it? Does so. it? Does it? Do you have it standing up or anything? So in they the room put or? him. It, they did such a great job. Like they put him on a, a full mannequin oh, and on badass. the stand, and you can barely see the stand. So it looks like he's it's just standing oh, out there. That's, right? that's and he's more. He's over six feet tall. Like he's oh. super fucking tall, and he's he's gorgeous. The only thing that's missing is his teeth, because obviously you can't. You know, I don't even. I don't even think they kept that. But but so I got that. 
I kept the clay model that they made, oh, so um, nice. which is also really cool. It looks a little bit different, so it's great. I got um, there's a character who ages in the movie, so I have the the kind of the 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 makeup um, concept that they did, oh, that's like a great. full bust that they made the concept on. And then on the last night of the shoot, the crew, the production designer, got the shoes, the, the dance shoes, you yeah. know, the, the red ballet shoes, right. signed by all the cast oh, and crew. And then they awesome. put them in a, a shadow box and, and they gave me that. And they kind of, yeah, I was very touched. That's that is cool. very wow. sweet. And the, uh, speaking of the ballet, the song that we hear over and over again in the movie, I, yeah. I'm not sure that, I mean, it's a classical composition. I'm not sure the name of it. What is the name of it? And is there any significance to to uh, that one, that choice? I don't know the name. It's the Rachmaninoff piece. Got it. Um, for a long time, it was like the thing that I was using. I'd never thought that I would use it in the final film, but it used to be Danse Macabre was the thing that we used on set. And then we used it in the first, in the temp. It's our composer, Christopher Drake, who came up with, with the piece here that the Rachmaninoff and, and made those beautiful different versions. And it feels very, when you have the full version at the end, it feels yeah. very Hellraiser. Yeah, it does. It really does. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And we had no time. And I mean, it's, this is really not a big budget as you know, clearly. And we had to do all the posts in, during the pandemic, just the movie was shot and I did my director's cut and then the world shut down and then everything else had to be done remotely but at a time where things were not really established so we had very little time to do the music and we couldn't do a spotting session together like it had to be through zoom so it was it was hard to work on and he couldn't have a full orchestra because we couldn't afford one anyway but also you can bring people in so he managed to make this feel so orchestral and beautiful with so little and it's just so clever and and I'm a big believer in using very little music generally, especially when you try to scare people, kind of mm -hmm. stripping it down. And so a lot of it was kind of an exercise of removing and just going, I think we can just go with just this one instrument or can we remove yeah, It's a very elegant score. Kind of I would describe it. it as that. Yeah. I, if it had been up to me, it would have been even more minimalistic throughout, but I love the result. I think that, and again, he kept those elements of the dance and there's a little theme for the dance. There's a little theme for the grandson. There's a little kind of little things that subliminally remind you of what she might be thinking about or what goes into some decisions. And yeah, I, he did a really beautiful job. Yeah. And so did you. He scores <laughs> Creep Show yeah. as well, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. He's the same guy who scores the Creep Show TV show. Everybody, do you have any other last questions about the manor before we... I feel like we've kept her so We've long. kept her, yeah, we've kept her so long. She now, she now lives here in yeah. our manor. Uh, this is pretty cool. I feel like we've, I've, I've spoken for like hours. No, no. I'm hey, happy we, to continue. We love, we love it. But Time listeners are not fast asleep at this point. No way. They're rivet, riveted. They're riveted to their seats. Well, I, I guess, hey. You got to check out The Manor. It hits Prime Video October 8th. It's part of Welcome to Blumhouse. How, is this the second round of Welcome to Blumhouse they've it's done, the I believe? second year. It's actually just the second one that was shot. But we kept it last year because what was going on in nursing homes, we felt like that was sure. not the time to release it. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, so it's 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 been it's been finished for a while. But yeah, it's the second year of Welcome to Blumhouse. This is the second week of welcome to blumhouse so the first two came out last week and then we have this one and i think the other one is madras that comes out at the same time and um yeah it's despite everything i've been talking about i'm hoping this isn't you know with the, the dementia and the heavy stuff 
I'm hoping this is an entertaining, spooky movie. Yep. It has it's very inspired by gothic horror. It's very much like it's very personal to me, but I hope that it's also fun to watch and you know lots of references for there's a dark delicacies t-shirt there is there. there's like, lots of little easter you know, eggs you can pick up on for horror fans so yeah hopefully that's fun yeah, yeah there's, and a, there's a mike mendez easter egg there is and a bill malone yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah. and i think it's like it's something you can watch with your kids too yeah. it is yeah. it is very much oh like a God. gateway horror film nothing more than having grandmas and grandparents watching it with their kids yeah. it would be so cool and it's got a very unexpected and terrifying twist <laughs> yes it does. we'll leave you at that <laughs> and before we go i want to get at least one recommendation of a horror movie you've seen that has blown your mind recently oh shit something recent yeah something re- something you've recently seen doesn't have to be a recent movie you know what midnight mass yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right i'm gonna go with midnight mass because it's the best stuff i've seen in a very long time have you made it through the whole series yeah yeah, yeah. i um I watched it over a weekend and I really made it like there was a Sunday where I decided I'm taking the Sunday off and I'm going to watch this and I'm going to have pizza, which was kind of an homage to Flanagan's yeah. former yes. Instagram. Yes. Right. Right. And it's a rare treat. So it was wonderful. But it was like pumpkin pie and pizza at midnight mass. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. That's and, the best. Did, you, that did you know the plot? Did you know what was going to transpire in the, in the uh, series? No, no. I picked up on what it was about. In the second episode, when they introduce a specific element, yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, I see where this is going. Yeah. And it was very satisfying. And I have to admit that it felt so much like the kind of stuff I want to make that part of me was bummed watching it, thinking <laughs> this this thing has been made and it's not been made by me. Right. And no, it's that's... been made better than I would have made it. <laughs> oh. All right, Axel. Thank you so yes. much for joining us. I'm so sorry we kept you yeah. like forever. <laughs> but thank you guys. It was really oh, cool so to have awesome. you here. It's, yes. it's been thank a long time coming. So much. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Yay. That was the Boot Crew Podcast episode 263. Special thanks to our guest, Axel Carolyn. Follow her at Axel underscore Carolyn on Instagram. Her new film, The Manor, is available on Amazon Prime now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, Sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.